This is Football Social Daily, Premier League podcast. Hello, my name is Ant McGinley and this is Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League podcast. On today's show, the road to the European Championships in Germany 2024 kicks off later today with a replay of the final in the last tournament. Reigning champions Italy take on England in the fiery hotbed of Naples. Also this week, we've seen Roy Hodgson break the record as the oldest Premier League manager. And at the same time, former gunner Meza Ozil has announced his retirement from football completely. But we're going to start today's show with the ongoing saga at Manchester United. So it's a good job. I'm joined by our resident Man United fan, Joel Tudor. Good morning. Yeah, it was an exhausting night putting in my offer last night. Sorry for all the commotion that I've caused there. <laughs> you must be one of the other bidders that got their bid in by nine o'clock on Wednesday evening. Yeah, there's no minimum, so I hear, so you'll be soon uh, seeing <laughs> how much I've actually bidded, but no, bit of a chaotic night, wasn't it? Also joining us today is a man who has recent experience of ex- watching his club go through uh, this whole process in the form of Newcastle with Marley Anderson. Good morning, yes, uh, I do not miss the complete just guesswork of what goes into a takeover, it's just... Yeah, I don't envy that at all, but uh, Joel's got a long, long bloody road ahead of him because this uh, these things don't get sorted quickly and there's a lot of a lot of attention seekers and by the sounds of it, he's one of them with his uh, £10 and a packet of crisps uh, bid. So the reason this is back in the news is last night there was a deadline for renewed bids to go in and it turns out that the two favoured bidders are the ones we think are most likely to be successful. That's Jim Ratcliffe's Ineos and also the Qatari group both missed their deadline. It turns out that they've asked for extra time to put those bids together. As we're expecting something in the region of four or five billion pounds, you can understand them wanting to make sure they've got every I dotted and every T crossed. Joel, as as a Man United fan, I very much get the impression that for a lot of you, it's anyone but the Glazers. So you're not, it's not about who's going to buy it. It's more about when and the time frame. And I guess you just want this done and dusted as quickly as possible. Yeah, to be honest, I'm quite calm. I think there's a lot of speculation and a lot of um, immediate reaction as if to say it's all going to collapse on us. But the way I've seen it and from what I've seen of people who are a little bit more savvy when it comes to corporate finance is that it's all a bit of smoke and mirrors because the two main bidders who are the only ones who are looking to do a full takeover, if them two are asking for extensions my thinking is that they've waited until the other the other parties put in a bid and have waited to see how much they've bid or waited to see how much other parties have bid and then they were going to try and trump them potentially because that's the only reason i feel like no bidder wants to be the only one on the table straight away it's almost like they're waiting to see what the other does constantly because let's not forget it's not like going to your local shop and buying a capri's bar this is a massive massive transaction and they're trying to save as much money as possible in a really tactful way and it's all part of the negotiations I think so I don't think there's any way to worry it's just more so how all of the journalists and all of the media were led like sheep with this one source who's probably <laughs> laughing his head off in his penthouse in New York somewhere feeding them all this information and then suddenly it changes in the blink of an eye I mean I don't know what's happening with that fax machine at Old Trafford but the last time I saw it malfunction like this was when David De Gea never got his move to Real Madrid I don't know if they're using the same st- system but I think they are because Old Trafford is in need of a major renovation 
Um, but no, I think it's all part of the process. I think it will get done eventually. I don't have a clue which party, but I do think with the amount of figures that have been seen brandishing around, I think the Glazers will be absolutely mad not to take a bid in the region of five billion when you see the amount of renovation of infrastructure and just the plan in place for the next years. It needs new life into the club. Um, and I don't think for one second that they're going to pass up on this massive opportunity to get so much money because the value, can it really go up that much more without the need for investment? And if they get it from a consortium, it's going to put on more debt on the club and the fans will not be happy about that. So I think there's only one route and that is a full sale. But the media are just getting played like an absolute puppeteer at the moment, just seemingly giving them drip fees like a little carp fish coming up from the pool. <laughs> Well, from that, Joel, we'll have to earmark at least 50 quid from that, uh, whatever the final price is for a brand new fax machine and an extra phone line. So, Marley, you've, you've been through something like this fairly recently with what happened at Newcastle, but it seems to me that there's more coverage of this than what happened. Is that just because uh, it, it, it's present now? I mean, are your memories that it was something very similar? If I remember rightly, there was only really one bidder involved in the whole uh, Newcastle scenario and it was just about them basically having permission to buy the club yeah I think um, when I mean when the the Saudis and Amanda Staveley and the Rubin brothers was trying to overtake Techna buy Newcastle recently there was only them trying to buy it the club wasn't I mean it's been for sale under Mike Ashley for years sort of on the low like everyone knew that it was for sale but it wasn't sort of like with Man United now, it's almost like there's a deadline, like we need to sell it now. Um, and that's why all these bidders are getting deadlines and, you know, everyone's trying to scramble around and get the money together and, and the sort of facts in order to, to try and put a bid together. But with Newcastle, it was like, it was, I think it was for sale for years. Um, and the only one who were coming in at that time were, were the the, uh, the Saudis that eventually got it. Um, but Amanda Stavely came, came with um, Peter Kenyon years ago trying to um trying to get a bid together and Kenyon didn't have the money uh, I don't think he wasn't like financially it wasn't right for him so Amanda Stavely went away to another um to be part of another consortium eventually found the Saudis found um uh, got the the backing of the Rubin brothers again and said right we'll move with the Saudis and you know it, it dragged on for a while like like it does all the due diligence people have got to do and all the background checks and and then it goes to the Premier League, and that's when you—that's when everything, you know, can can slow down or or whatever. And you know, I think at one point the Saudi deal completely fell through, and it was it was on its on its backside basically, and uh, and then it was revived from 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 sort of nowhere really. But the, the following it as a fan, I mean, what I did was just I didn't put any like emotional. Um, investment into it because there was so many false dawns with Newcastle um there was so many hopes of right he's going he's finally going uh these guys are coming in and then these guys turned out to be cowboys and then somebody else would be like oh well we might be interested and then you know certain reporters try and make names for themselves and be like yeah these like these guys are interested when in reality it was all smoke and mirrors and the thing with the takeover is nobody's nobody's really talking to the media Nobody's really talking to journalists because it involves them saying how much money they've got and they don't like to do that. Rich people don't like to tell you how, they like to show you how much money they've got, but they won't show you the bank balance and say, we've got this and we've put in this this money, this bid for X club. 
they'll they'll do it by you know I've got this yacht and I've got this house and I've got this mansion and this helipad and all this, but they won't go like, yeah we've put in a five billion pound bid the for Man United the money is on the table until you know the the thirtieth of March or whatever it just it doesn't happen like that so for, so as a fan, getting like third hand information is so frustrating, um so for me I just said right I like I always said on the podcast and stuff when when Jim and Niall and, and people were saying like well when's this you know, when's this deal going to go through? And I always just said, I'll, I'll believe the deal is going through and I'll get excited when they're holding up the the shirt and when Mike Ashley's packing his Sports Direct signs into a bag, into a skip outside and buggering off back to Jersey or wherever he calls home. Uh, I, I'll I'll believe that when that happens. But yeah, well, pick a tax haven and go and live there, you fat slazzing. Get standing by the beat button. Joggers yeah. wearing. Getting a break in it. God, yeah. I'm trying not to. I'm trying to make it an easy edit for you, mate, to be honest. But yeah, it's. Yeah, I mean, there's. it's just so hard and so taxing on you as a fan to be like, it's going to be these guys. We're going to do this, 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 and this. And then, you know, the money doesn't come together. Like, there's, there'd have been loads of Man United fans last night. Being like, oh, at nine o'clock tonight, we'll know who is likely to be the new owners, and we got there, and the two biggest bidders didn't didn't step up to the plate. So Man United, like that, that for a Man United fan will be the first kick in the teeth that will come, and there'll be loads more down the line as well because it you think it you think it's nearly done, then the Premier League will get involved with the. Um, a fit and proper owners test and that's came under massive scrutiny in recent years because of Newcastle and because of Man City and because of uh, a few other clubs as well um, and so that'll be even more stringent and it'll drag on and on and on I would think um, and yeah there's, it's basically it's the start of a, a marathon really this I think for Man United fans it's not a sprint uh, Marley I know you said you tried not to pay too much attention to it as a fan uh, but obviously it did affect you um, do you think the whole process is disruptive to the club? I'm thinking particularly like game day playing staff because, I mean, it's obvious now, you know, since the since the, the deal went through, the transformation at Newcastle has been nothing short of exciting, even if you're not a Newcastle fan. But at, at this moment, like, what do you think it's it's like having having seen it through through your Newcastle eyes? Do you think that the United game day team, the playing staff, the coaching staff, the manager are experiencing stress from this. Is that just a, an, an annoyance in the background? Probably, yeah, because it's not a secret that the club's for sale. It's not a secret that the fans have uh, have hated the club, uh, club's owners for, you know, ever since they came in, basically. Um, you know, they see the protests, they see... They they know that they can't say anything about the owners as well. You see that sometimes um, players pussyfooting around a bit of uh, you know the the name the Glazers. If they're asked about it, they're very coy on it and they're very sort of well, it's not my place to speak type of thing. And no one wants to to annoy the fans or annoy annoy the owners. But everyone knows that it's there. Um, so it's probably got a few few players thinking. Um, you know what's it going to be like in. When this when this does happen, will I still be here? Will I be surplus to requirements? But the players can't really think like that. They can only affect what happens, you know, day to day. Like what what happens in training, what happens on a match day, um, whether they're picked, whether they're injured, whether they're fit. You know, it, it, 
it's just something they've got to get on with and I know it's it's a massive distraction but it's uh it's probably worse for the worse for the fans than the players because ultimately they're the ones with just hope and Man United players that now and coaching staff have expectation now rather than just hope for the future. Joel, if I'm right, the the reason why most United fans hate the Glazers, the current owners, is because uh, they bought United mostly in the form of loans, which they secured against the club assets, which, according to the figures I've seen, is costing the club about £60 a year in interest payments. Is that about right? Is that is that the reason? Just for anybody that's not a Man United fan, is that the reason why? There's a lot. Well, there's a lot of reasons. There's a reason why the stadium needs a massive renovation. There's a reason why we've got one of the worst trading grounds out of the top European sides in Europe, and that's the reason being that they've neglected the club. They literally hid behind Sir Alex Ferguson's success for a good decade because they didn't need to put too much investment into it because the club is an absolute money making machine, and now they're almost poor handling of the club has come to light because in the last decade it's been complete opposite of what Sir Alex Ferguson put in place and now it's not even just the fact that you know they're taking interest it's the fact that the takeover in the first place would not be allowed now in today's climate it's something a leveraged takeover is something that wouldn't take place so if the rules were in place now back in 2004 2005 the Glazers wouldn't even be owners so it just shows in itself how much of a almost dodgy deal it is because it's a community it's a cultural asset it's not just a normal business that you're taking over and it's just the fact that not even despite the fact that they take out dividends the glazers themselves have taken out and extracted more than a billion pounds in terms of value out of the club and that could have been putting reinvestment into the stadium into the squad so for me it's purely a case of getting someone in who is not going to hide behind the manager's success, hide behind the brand, the huge brand that it is, and start putting a plan in place which actually benefits the fans in the club. So for me, they've reached the end of their tenure now. There's nothing more they can do and nothing more that will appease the fans more than them just leaving. And let's not forget, they're going to be very wealthy men after this. They paid £500 million to take over the club. They're going to make a four billion five billion pound profit walk away be done with it or i kind of fear what the reaction would be if, if this takeover didn't go over because it's been 17 years long time coming the there are some rumors i know you said they'd be crazy to turn down what could be four or five billion pounds in a takeover uh, but apparently some other groups have offered investment and cash injection rather than a full takeover and so there's some fears that this whole farce may be a way for the Glazers to increase the value of the club and therefore take out even more dividends. Uh, is it possible for you to hate them even more than you do now if that was to happen? I think it would just go up another tier, wouldn't it, if we saw them in the, uh, well, I was going to say in the executive box, but they don't even visit Old Trafford, so it's not even that. And let's not forget, this investment that you're talking about is not a goodwill gesture. It's not a gift from Deloitte or JP Morgan. This is debt that is going to be taken on by the Glazers, which will probably put on the club, which increases the interest, which takes money out of the club. It's a perpetual cycle of just taking money out constantly. 
but we need someone now who's going to take us to the next level who isn't going to use the club as a cash cow uh, and literally hides behind success because have you noticed that now that Ten Hag's turned fortunes around a little bit suddenly they're starting to become a little bit more interested in staying it's almost reminiscent of the Sir Alex Ferguson era where they didn't have to put in too much investment because the manager held the club up and the brand held the club up so now is the right time and I don't think anyone in their right mind would accept Deloitte or any of these American banks propping up the Glazers with more billions of loans because in the end of the day it never works out and the club ends up paying the price for it by the way, if you do want to buy a club uh, and you haven't got that much money knocking about, uh, Everton are currently up for sale, uh, asking price around £500 million, which is a bargain compared to Man United, although they may not be Premier League material for much longer. Where are they plucking that figure from? 500 Why? I, I, who, who is valuing that? The guy that's selling it. Here, lads, you can have the second best team in your city, who is crap. And you've got a massive stadium to pay for. But yeah, we want half a billion pounds. That is yeah, mental. That is the asking price that uh, Everton are looking for as of January this year. The stadium's still got wooden seats, for God's sake. <laughs> exactly. Well, that, that, that wood's valuable. You take that wood down an antique road, Sean, you'll get a fair bit for it. We'll leave that there and uh, we'll Christ. bring you news on that as, as it goes on. But no doubt this will run... Uh, for a fair while longer, possibly throughout the summer as well. Uh, Next up, we're going to look ahead to tonight's uh, European football action, including England against Italy in Napoli. Hello and welcome back to FSD, the Football Social Daily. Tonight, it's international action as England take on Italy in the opening game of European Championship qualification. Yes, the road to 2024 and Germany starts here with a replay of the final from the last tournament. Reigning champions Italy, who beat England on penalties in a heartbreaking game for England fans at Wembley. It's a tough start in an otherwise manageable group for England. But the question, I suppose, really is going to be how much of a benchmark will this be for Gareth Southgate? And England. It's been mixed fortunes uh, for the two sides since they last met. Italy failing to qualify for their second World Cup in a row and losing their unbeaten run. And England getting to the latter stages of a major tournament but failing to get it across the line. So as we come into this with Harry Kane on the verge of breaking uh, Wayne Rooney's England goals record and on the other side Mancini bemoaning the lack of striking options he's got. So I suppose the question I'm asking at this point is is what we're all going to ask is, you know, have England improved? Could this be the time? Is this the start of finally the road to success? Well, I think the best marker is going from 2016 under Roy Hodgson when England got knocked out by Iceland and it was one of the worst major tournaments I've seen England in in a long, long time. And that's hard because two years before they got out in the group stages of the World Cup. So, of course, in that aspect, I think the mentality changed as England approach major tournaments where the group stage is no longer seen as the most biggest mountain to climb. It's more so just a formality to get out of it now and actually reach, you know, a minimum of the quarterfinals or a semifinals at the very least. Uh, but I know that Greg Dyke, the 
managing director or the leader of the FA, he set a timer in place in 2013, which was by 2022, he wanted to set that that um, tournament as the one to win it. And I think now that we haven't actually completed any of it, it is a massive disappointment because when you look at this England squad, you've got a bunch of players who are constantly reaching European finals, the, the highest uh, performers in Europe, majority of them. And it just feels now that it's becoming the final end of a chapter because I don't see Southgate staying on past 2024. And this is almost his last chance with this group of players because, I mean, when you look at the group of players in general, I think it's a last chance for a lot of them uh, from that group. It's almost been the same crop since 2018, which is good. But again, it means nothing if you don't win anything. So I think the likes of, you know, Harry Maguire, Kieran Trippier, Kyle Walker, um, Ivan Tony, if he even gets a chance... There's a lot of players there that this is going to be their final tournament most likely and you'll see a new crop take their place. And from the disappointment of the last tournament where I thought this should be the one, um, there's no guarantees, is there? And it just fe- I think if Gareth Southgate walked away with no trophy, I think it'd be an absolutely mass- massively missed opportunity because it's, just, it's a talented squad. But again, like we've seen for the last 60 years, England, this England squad and just England squads that have gone by, even when you look in the 90s, they get to the final stage and they can't take it one step further. So I think this is the final chance uh, for Southgate. And I just don't, I'm not sure how it's going to play out, to be honest. I don't think England have got a squad, a squad strong enough to rival some of the best uh, European teams this time around. You say that about the squad there, Joel, but Marley, when when you look at what we've got, I know Mancini's been bemoaning the, the lack of striking options that he's got. He's even been looking at one player that was playing in Romania in the fourth division of Italian football, whereas we've got the likes of uh, Tony and Kane, and although he's injured, Marcus Rashford has been on sensational form as well. So... Um, is it just a, a a case of that that simple formula of, of putting it all together? Or would you give uh, Southgate credit for bringing these players through into into England and, and giving them the opportunities and also showing faith with them? Yeah, I think um, it's it's a, it's a mix of both. I think um, I think to win a tournament, you have to you have to most of the time have experience of getting close. Not that many teams win tournaments out of the blue. I think the last one would probably be probably be Denmark in '92, winning the Euros in '92. You know they came out of the blue and and went pretty far. But you think about the the teams that have won major tournaments since then, and you know France, Brazil, Italy, you know Germany. They've they all get there or thereabouts. Spain, you know, had their golden period of like 2010, 2012, when they just walked over everyone. But yeah, I think with with England, I think the they're probably in the the perfect position to go and win the tournament in twenty twenty four because it's the Euros that they got to the final of, and just by rights there is less talent in in a European Championship than a World Cup. You know, you don't have to deal with Argentina, with Brazil, um, and with you know Uruguay can turn up and things like that. You know, there's just there's less there's less teams, so it's um it's one of them where if you can ride it. You know, if you can ride your sort of um, journey there on and use your experience that you've picked up, and I think that's one of the reasons why he's keeping most of the team together. If he, he still feels like, you know, this team's got another another crack in it, the likes of Maguire, even though you might not agree with him being in the squad, which which I don't, and most people don't, he's still got legs in him at international level, 
Um, and he's had that experience of, of being in the England team that got to the semis in the World Cup and got to the final of the Euros. So, you know, if you can if you can sort of stitch that together with the young, exciting lads coming through, you know, Rashford probably still qualifies in that in terms of his England career. He still needs to sort of take off. Um, had a good Euros, obviously, and, you know, a good, uh, sorry, a good World Cup recently. But, you know, he's still waiting for that star performance in, in the England shirt, I would say. Um, but there's there's talent there, you know. There's there's enough talent to go and win the tournament, hundred percent. And you look at Italy, who are historically one of the best teams in the in the world. But you look at their squad and you look at the starting lineup, and you you don't you're not scared by any of it. You you never haven't been for probably ten years. You look at you know there's some decent like Verratti's a really good player, of course. But you look at people like up front, like uh, Mancini's been saying, it's like who who's this Raspadori, like he's he's a bit of a sort of journeyman striker almost who's came through and Skamaka's not done very well at West Ham so far. Um Immobile's a bit little bit old in the long in the tooth now. Bellotti, kinda similar. So and then then they're sort of pinning the hopes on like Wilfred Nonto at Leeds and it's like you know, if if this is the best you've got, I, I fancy us, which is why it was a disappointment that we didn't win the Euros final two years ago, but that's football in it, and you know you've got to you've got to go again and try and use that experience as as um, sort of fuel for the future. Bring back Balotelli is what I say. Uh, just picking up on talking about <laughs> Harry Maguire there, um, Joel. Obviously, um, you, you'll have seen Harry more than most, even though he's not played that much uh, for, for Man United uh, this season. Uh, what what are your feelings on him as as a Manchester United fan, as as your club captain at the moment? I think it's been massively unfair, to be honest. I think what he goes through is a bit of a character assassination where once the bandwagon starts going, everyone looks for faults every game rather than what he's doing good. Everyone looks for any little thing that he's doing bad and then they'll magnify it times 100. Whereas for any other player, it doesn't really work that way. And I know under a Ten Hag side, he doesn't really fit the mould of being a ball-playing centre-back. And in that aspect... I feel sorry for him because he's not got the right traits to be in that kind of team, which is okay. And he probably will get moved on in the summer. But for a Southgate side who, when we play against, you know, the likes of France or the likes of Brazil or any team that's a little bit more dominating, he's the perfect kind of centre-back to have because he's great when you're in the trenches and, you know, trying to defend a lead or uh, set pieces, incredible and that's why he looks, and that's why he's got you know player of the tournament awards in the Euros uh, just gone by because he was a great defender. He's a great tournament defender, but when you're playing for a ball playing domestic team, it's a different kind of kettle of fish, isn't it? Where you have to really show your true assets in terms of possession play and what the manager wants week in week out, and it just it doesn't seem to happen at United. So for me, I think I know a lot of, and you know, you make a great point that Mancini he looks for Italian players everywhere. Doesn't matter about their status or their reputation. He's happy to bring someone in who's potentially, you know, playing in Serie B for, um, for example, a young player. Whereas with Southgate, he refuses to venture out of his comfort zone of the players who respects the players who he knows is going to give them reliable performances, and that's where the two managers differ. I don't know if one's right or one's wrong, but one's got a European Championship and the other hasn't. 
So I don't know which way you look at it. Whatever the result of the Italy game, England look in a good position to get through, even though the tournament hasn't even started yet. Uh, They play Ukraine on Sunday, their next game. Also in their group, they face North Macedonia and Malta. And gone are the days when we have any fear of any slip-ups with those sides. You mentioned Roy Hodgson earlier. Let's just uh, look at Roy, who's returned to Selhurst Park this week. We knew it was coming. Uh, but the interesting thing about this is it makes him the oldest manager in the Premier League ever. Older than Claudio Ranieri, older than Alex Ferguson, and even older than Neil Warnock. He's 75 years old. Uh, he's got a wealth of experience behind him. Obviously, managed uh, England, uh, various clubs on, on the international stage and in different leagues as well. Uh, I'm sure Crystal Palace fans will be excited because... Uh, We all remember he was the guy that came in when they were dead and buried after seven straight defeats and no goals at the start of this season. So this got me thinking, which former manager of your club that you've had in the Premier League would you like to see come back to your club for a swan song? I'm pretty sure I know the answer that Joel's going to (laughs) give. And it's not Jose Mourinho. Uh, and I also feel that me and Marley may give the same answer. Uh, so, Joel, uh, I'm guessing you're going to go for Fergie. Moyes. <laughs> um, yeah, of course. I mean, that's the obvious choice, isn't it? But I don't know. For me, I've always had a real affinity with Mourinho. I know he didn't go really well at United. If we could get the 2004 Mourinho... I would take him tomorrow. Obviously not in place of Ten Hag, but I mean, if I had to choose someone, he had such a charm about him and just the almost invincibility that I think any club would take him. Obviously, his charisma started to die off a little bit as as you see now, you know, at Roma. He's not the same manager that he used to be. But for someone in that 2004 to 2012 period, I think he's pretty much unmatched, along with Guardiola, you'd say. Joel mentioned charm there. Are you going for a charming former manager to bring back to Newcastle? Possibly one that likes helicopters? Uh, no. Um, I don't know. Do, do they have to be? Do they have to be still alive? Like, does it have to be physically possible? Because there's only one manager. The only condition is that they've managed uh, the club in the Premier League. Okay. Oh well, it's it's that qualifies Bobby Robson then, because that's uh, that's the only one I would I would ever want back. Really, I think we've had some stinkers since then. I thought you would have picked Steve Bruce. Wouldn't have picked Steve Bruce. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't have picked Joe Kinnear. Uh, wouldn't have picked. Oh, Joe Kinnear would have been brilliant. <laughs> Kenny Dalglish, uh, Rude Hullet. Wouldn't... Not another little swan song with uh, Alan Shearer for three games. <laughs> No, uh, as 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 much as he is God up there, no. Uh, let's let's leave his his skills in the punditry. But now, Bob Bobby Robson for me. I mean, he, he took over the club when we were bottom of the league. Um, I think on the first game, first home game, we beat Sheffield Wednesday eight nil, um, and he took us into Europe. He took us, you know, into the Champions League. We got through the Champions League. It was two group stages back then. Um, I think we were the only team in in Champions League history to lose the first three group games and still qualify from the group. Um, I think we beat Leverkusen and, and Inter Milan and Feyenoord, I think it was, um, back in the day. But yeah, that was uh, that was that was quality and probably the only time we've we've got a managerial appointment spot on really in, in terms of what came after him. Um you know, the eight year contract for for Alan Pardew was was mental. Um, Steve Bruce following, following on. Has that paid off yet? 
it, has that only eight in, years finished? Only in 2020. So Pardew's contract would have finished and then COVID started. So <laughs> I feel like the, the two are interlinked somehow, definitely. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's all good now. It's all good looking back on it. But at the time, it's, it was horrendous. The, some of the appointments we've we've made have, have been really bad over the years. Uh, Kevin Keegan would be another one, obviously, but Bobby Robson was uh, was the one for me. Uh, th- that's interesting because I, I I thought you might have gone for Keegan, which is what I'm going for as a Man City fan, uh, purely because of his sheer enthusiasm and his press conferences, and he would have been a, like a kid in a sweet shop. Can you imagine what he would have done with the uh, the money that's behind him if had he been at City now? Plus, I've also got this theory um, that Pep Guardiola, as much as we all love him and have complete faith in him, if Pep just didn't show up we'd still do all right simply because of the amount of talent that we've got. So even Kevin Keegan couldn't mess it up. <laughs> I thought you might have gone for um, Stuart Pearce so you could have a goalkeeper going up front in the last 10 minutes oh. than a, a record-signing <laughs> striker sitting on the bench. You know you know what? You know what? The, I, I, I do... I'm one of the few people that have fond memories of Stuart Pearce. Uh, not because he sold Sean Wright Phillips and brought in Georgia Samaras... Although, um, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I, I still like Samaras as well, but there you go. That is that is the bane of being a diehard fan. He was all right on his day, Samaras. He, he, he wasn't the worst. No. Certainly not the worst signing you've ever made. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, and speaking of players that cause controversy, we're going to talk about another one who's just announced his retirement in the next section. We'll just take a quick break now. Welcome back to the Football Social Daily, an award-winning Premier League podcast. And speaking of awards, did you know that we are nominated at the Sports Podcast Awards? Have you voted yet, boys? Voted, yep. Got, uh, so we're going to get at least one vote. So if, if everyone could uh, could do the same and, and get us a couple of awards, that'd be great. Head over to sportspodcastgroup.com and while you're there, also in the sports comedy section, uh, you might see a little show that I do called Wrestling with the champ also up for a gang, one of tw- uh, for a gang also up for a gong, one of twenty three <laughs> that we've got across the network. So a little round of applause for everybody who's been nominated for that. Voting is still open for another week. It's a public vote, which means we are up against the rest of the world. So we greatly appreciate your support in that. Now, as you might have noticed, every Wednesday we like to sit down and have an in-depth chat with a former professional footballer. Uh, so far we've had Brian McClare, Wes Brown, Francis Benali, Matt Jarvis, Pascal Chumbonda and on the latest episode we spoke to former Chelsea and Newcastle man Jeremy. So that's why all those newspaper was coming. For me I was saying that no no it's not true. I was not believing at that time. That's why I think I still continue to keep Focus up about what I was doing. Uh, the clubs called me. They say, "Okay, we had a bid for you." I say, "Well, what is that? The, what does that mean? It means that now the decision it is in your hand." I say, "Okay, what is that?" He said, "They said, if do you want to go to Real Madrid?" He, I look the manager of my club. I say. Are you serious? What I ask it a question. He said, "Yeah, I'm serious. We, we for us, uh, we are, we already agree. 
So now the ball is on your side. And uh, you, like you said, you know the decision. So it was the dream coming true. So that's a little clip of the Jeremy interview, which you can catch up with uh, from yesterday's show. Just go to the show before this one in the podcast feed. It was great. He, um, I feel like he's one of those players that not people don't realise what he done in the game. You know, two Champions Leagues, two Premier Leagues, and two African Nations Cups with with Cameroon. Um, and in a time where you look at the players he played with and and the the, the games he played in El Clasico's playing behind Figo, Zidane. He was in that that early, um, that Real Madrid team of the sort of 2000 era, Morientes, Raul, Zidane, Guti, all these, all these players, you know, Nadal and um, all those types of, of names were, were insane. And then obviously he went to Chelsea when the, when the money started flowing in, Mourinho came. So he was part of that first like influx of, of quality players and, you know, got backed himself with two, two Premier Leagues as well. So, yeah, he's um he was a really good guy. Like interesting what he's done after his career as well, working with um you know using his experience to help other players that may make mistakes that he almost made or did make in his in his career. And that's uh it's a really good uh, sort of wide ranging chat really. Now on the subject of former professional footballers, that title can now be awarded to Meza Ozil. Yes, the former Gunners and Real Madrid midfielder has announced his retirement. He's going to be remembered as a player who could bring moments of genius and absolute class. Something of a statement by when Arsenal spent £40 million on him, bringing him in from Real Madrid at a time when they were criticised for never spending any money whatsoever. Joel, are we going to look back at Meza Ozil, particularly his time in the Premier League, as a player that uh, leaves us with some fond memories and some moments of class, or one that never really lived up to what he could have done, his potential? No, I think, well, for me, he's one of my favourite players during that, well, especially after that 2010 World Cup when he first broke through in that Germany team. You could see he was going to be an absolutely ridiculously good player. Um, I think United were in for him. He was between them and Real Madrid, and obviously everyone chooses Real Madrid uh, to go, and he was absolutely immense in Spain in terms of his output. I think he got like 28 assists a season in all competitions for three years straight, which is just absolutely insane numbers. Um, uh, and I just think for the way in which he was at Arsenal, obviously he did an incredible first year when he first went. I think he got something like 16, 17 assists in the Premier League. I know he tailed off slightly after, but everyone realises he probably could have achieved way more, but that's just showing how good his level actually was because he won pretty much everything bar a, a Champions League. He won the La Liga with Real Madrid uh, breaking Barcelona's dominance over that 2010 to 2013 period. Um, won a World Cup and was instrumental in that in Brazil. And then it almost ended really bitterly after that 2018 World Cup. Everything seemed to go on a little bit of a downfall where, you know, he accused the previous Germany FA president, uh, Reinhard Grindel, of racism when he got pictured with the Turkish president. And then he got almost exonerated from the national team. And there was just never the same relationship after that. And then the same at Arsenal as well. You know, I think there was some strong accusations of 
what he was doing off the pitch that led to him actually getting moved on from Arsenal as well. I don't know the exact ins and outs of why, but it ended bitterly. So it's ended bitterly in a lot of different areas of his career, but I don't think it's for any fault of his own as well. Um, I think he's always been following what's right. It's just a case of when you look at him in a, a pure football perspective, he's almost like Berbatov in the way he's almost very... Um, lacklustre in terms of his approach, very casual. He was very different at Real Madrid because he had Mourinho who was constantly drilling him. But then at Arsenal, Arsene Wenger almost gave him this free role where he could just roam, not have to press. Uh, and I thought, for me personally, taking bias aside, I thought he was an absolutely magic player. Um, but I just think he could have gone one step further. But in his peak, he was one of the best attacking midfielders in the world easily. Yeah, he's definitely got a resume to be satisfied with as he hangs up his boots. Uh, you mentioned some of them already. Uh, La Liga, Copa del Rey, four FA Cups with Arsenal, and of course, uh, that World Cup in 2014. Uh, we we do have a habit, and I'm really glad you picked up on some of those things there, Joe, because, uh, Mali, I think you'll agree, um, not just as football fans, but with other things in life, we, as humans, we have a habit of remembering what happened at the end. Uh, rather than the middle or the beginning, uh, particularly with relationships. Not that I'm talking from personal experience right now, but, uh, you know, he, he had an absolutely wonderful touch. And as commentators often like to say, he only ever scored wonder goals. And, you know, in terms of just when you look back now, if you, if you go and you just Google and there's popping up all over the place, these highlight reels, particularly with this news, like some of the touches, some of the things that you see are incredible. Yeah, he. Um, I think Joel used the right word to be honest. Magic. He was. He was something that someone that can just pull something out of somewhere, whether it's a, a touch or the vision he had was was insane. Like he had vision for days. You know, he could see. He doesn't. He didn't have to look at where players were. He already knew. So he can play. Like I think when you when you're Ozil. He never had physical attributes. He was quite skinny. He couldn't. He wasn't very fast. And that is, if you can get to the top of the game with those um, negatives about you, then that proves that you're an incredible player. Because if you if you don't have physicality, you have to have brains on another level. You have to be brainier than a guy is fast. Because if you've got a fast, aggressive guy, you've got to be in a in a position where he won't be. That's how you get. That's how you have to play as a number ten. Because you have to find them little pockets of space. You have to read the game better. You have to know what your wingers are doing and your attackers doing ahead of you, um, and link up with them. And the amount of assists, like Joel just mentioned, you know, if you get close to thirty assists in a season, that's insane. But to do it, you know, season after season after season, and get to Arsenal and, and get to Real Madrid, and you know, do it for uh, do it for Germany back in the day as well. It's um, he's a player that'll probably go down as a bit underrated, to be fair, um, and that's maybe not. Um, right for for his for his level of talent, like how can a player that good be be under underrated sort of thing? And I I do think that comes from what you said, Ant, well, about how it how it ended. It, it didn't always end sort of naturally. It was kind of something happened, and then he he almost I don't know whether he ever downed tools because it's easy to it's easy to look at a player and say he's not trying because he's not sprinting and he's not doing that, but Ozil at his peak didn't really do that because he didn't have to. Like I just said, he had he had the brains. So how do you know that a player isn't trying when he never looked like he was trying because he was effortless? He was always 
he was always one step ahead. So how do you how do you see that type of player and go, oh, he's not trying anymore? Um, that's probably a bit of a frustration. And, and as well, he came into the he came out of the Arsenal team when when social media was um, was very polar and and very prominent in in Arsenal fans in particular. You know, so maybe he didn't get the credit there he deserved from from some some fans who just wrote him off as uh, as as somebody who didn't quite do it for them. But that'd be unfair in my opinion because some of the goals he scored and some of the play he he produced was was incredible. Yeah, some of the way some of the words and language you used to describe him. Then I just thought about for for anybody that's only really got into the Premier League recently. Uh, they'll have heard similar words used to describe the likes of Martin Odegaard, Phil Foden, and even Kevin De Bruyne, which really shows you the level that he's on. So Mesut Ozil retiring from football at 34. What the future holds for him, we don't know. But what we do know is he's left us with some incredible memories in the Premier League. We're going to leave it there for for today. Thank you very much to Joel and Marley for joining me and giving their opinions and insight on all the things we've covered today. On tomorrow's show, we will be looking back over the European qualifying action for Germany 2024, England taking on Italy in Naples tonight. And remember, uh, if you want to get on board and give us a little vote for the Sports Podcast Awards, head over to sportspodcastgroup.com. Thanks very much. See you next time. Football Social Daily is a voice work sport production for the Sports Social Podcast Network.